The book is How Woke Won, the elitist movement that threatens, threatens democracy, tolerance and reason by author Joanna Williams. Um, it came out in September 2022, the date I have here. And Joanna Williams joins us from the UK to talk about her book and and woke, wokeness. Joanna, thank you for giving us some time to talk about this fascinating, well, I guess it's a fascinating story, really, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but just to kick off by saying thank you very much for having me. Um, it's a real pleasure to to be joining you from the UK. Um, but uh, no, I, I became really fascinated by the word woke when it started exploding into popularity uh, in usage about two or three years ago now. And I started looking into where the word came from. And um, I was really fascinated to discover that it came from American slang, um, particularly American black street slang. And at that point in around the 1930s, when the word first started to be used over in the US, um, it was a way for uh, black Americans who were very genuinely under threat of, of police violence. And also, I mean, things like the Ku Klux Klan, street violence, there was real oppression, real violence against black people. And it was a kind of coded warning from one to another uh, to watch out, to be on guard that there were dangers about. And obviously at this time, like I say, with, with uh, the state in legally enforcing discrimination and um, groups operating like the Ku Klux Klan, these were very, very real dangers that people were warning themselves against. And, and kind of the words seem to have stayed in that kind of street, black street slang kind of arena um, for, for the best part of about 60, 70 years. And then I think the ultimate irony, really, given how um, woke people have various obsessions, one of which, um, if, if people are unfamiliar with, you know, I'm very happy to explain later, is this idea of cultural approach creation, the idea that you take on board um, an object or, or a kind of a way of dressing or a way of looking that's that's not uh, uh, from your culture. So like if I, as a white woman, was to wear big gold hoop earrings, I'd be told off uh, uh, culturally appropriating something that belongs to uh, Black African culture. So anyway, sorry, I digress, but I think it's very, very ironic, given that that's a woke obsession, that it was white people who then took took on board this um, black street slang word woke and used it to um, broadened out the meaning. So it wasn't just about being aware of a real and present danger to your life, but it became much more concerned with being politically aware more broadly, being aware of social injustices, not just racial injustices, but all kinds of, of what they, uh, people using this word, perceive to be social injustice. So if this is around the kind of uh, early early 2000s. It became just a very general word meaning be politically correct, be aware of inequality, be aware of social injustice. Um, clearly, I would argue that there were some social injustices that were being highlighted more than others. Uh, there was a real obsession, particularly with, with racial identity coming on at this point, uh, but also differences to do with sex and gender. Um, and that after about 10 years of this, it really got uh, swept up into the Black Lives Matter movement, the very early stages of the Black Lives Matter movement. And it became a really trendy word around kind of 2010, 20, up to about 2015. You know, um, you had people like the CEO of Twitter at the time, Jack Dorsey, who'd go to the stage in 2016, kind of speaking in front of a huge conference, wearing a T-shirt with the logo kind of stay woke. 
and the little Twitter bud. You know, people were very proud to be woke around 2016, 2017. And I think obviously with Brexit in the UK, with the election of Trump in the US, being woke seemed like a kind of radical opposition to those movements. Um, you know, kind of even at that stage, quite an elitist opposition. But it, it, when people then started using the word woke in the same way that the proponents of woke were using it to refer to them, you are woke, you know, this, this is what you're calling yourself. So we're going to use this word too. You know, you, you are describing yourselves as a woke movement. They kind of didn't like it, the people who were the proponents of woke, and they're very quick to deny any such thing and, and say that they were not woke at all. And that, that you know, what the woke was a meaningless kind of made up word and, and what were they on about? And some people did stick with it. Some people did say, yes, we are woke, you know, but woke just means being kind. And why would you not want to be kind? And so I think really since about 2018, that's where we've been with woke being used as a political football. You know, some people deny there's any such thing as woke. Some people say, yes, they are woke, but it just means being nice. And other people, I guess, like me, are saying, actually, you know, woke is a real thing. And it's not as nice and as kind as its proponents try and make out. There's actually something a little bit more going on here. So it's a term that's been appropriated, which is, it, it, it goes against <laughs> um, what I guess woke people claim. Uh, I mean, it's a complete <laughs> contradiction, hypocrisy, and as you say, ironic. Um, and I mean, there's plenty to talk about here, but you know, just hearing that, uh, I, I mean, is there a, an awareness of that in the woke movement? Yeah, you know, I think for yeah, I think for some people, and like I say, this is why people who even people who I would describe as as being woke. I mean, I guess from a New Zealand perspective, the number one person I would think of would be Jacinda Ardern. You know, I, I would describe somebody like that as being very very woke. But I think I think clearly, unlike other political movements in the past, you know, there's no kind of party or no badge or membership club that people sign up to to kind of mm. uh, declare themselves to be woke you know it's not like the Labour Party as was in the UK you know where people would be kind of proudly associated with it so like I said I think I think some woke people are aware that the term is perhaps a bit again to use another one of their favorite expressions a bit problematic um, and that's why they they distance themselves from it a little bit. But I think, like I said, the other half are are just very keen to to neutralise it and just say, oh, it just means being kind and being nice. Okay, so for the people who think it means being kind and being nice, okay, nice, that's good. You stick with that. <laughs> but let's try and pin it down exactly. Um, we kind of, you, you know, you're describing the run up to it. Here we are now, and. Uh, you know, it's a word that triggers some, used in a derogatory way for some, for many, let's say. Um, and, you know, I guess woke people would say that that's the, the dinosaur view or, or whatever. But what does it actually mean when, when we say someone is woke or, okay, they might think they're being kind and, and nice. But in reality, it seems to have, I don't know if this is the right word, but there seems to be more of a sinister edge. It it. It's trying to do something. What's it trying to do? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's a number of features of, of woke that I find particularly disturbing. I mean, one is the way that it talks about social justice. But as I say, it, it's only really got a very narrow range of obsessions as far as social justice is concerned. So it's very obsessed with identity and with categorizing and defining people according to their skin color, according to their gender identity, and then arranging them in kind of hierarchies of, of privilege and oppression. So so obviously, white men are at the top of the pyramid. You know, they are the most privileged and and um, black transgender women would be at the very bottom of the hierarchy as the least privileged group. Now, I think there's for me, there's two big problems with this. I mean, one is that it completely overlooks um, social class. So I would say in in this certainly in the UK, you know, there's a huge, huge variation amongst you can take this one kind of identity category group of white men but an upper class um, man who's been to a private school a top university you know has a role in the professions their life experiences are going to be incredibly different to a young man who's grown up on a council estate in the UK not had all those advantages and I would say exactly the same for black women as well you know privately educated black women Women could find that they have every door opened for them and that they, the, you know, the world's their oyster, there's so many opportunities available for them. Whereas black women, again, who've, you know, grown up on a council estate, not had such good educational opportunities, are going to find that they're in a very, very different position. So by focusing on skin color, gender, you know, it, it really ignores what I would think would be a much, much bigger um uh, in terms of social justice, uh, idea of, of, of social class, of, of economics, basically. But I think in a way it's even far more insidious than that because, you know, as somebody who's kind of getting on a bit now, you know, um, I grew up in, in the 1990s, was kind of when I was at university and becoming much more aware of what was going on in the world politically um, without wanting to be all kind of rose-tinted glasses about it. Clearly in the 1990s, there were inequalities in the world still, you know, there was racism, there was sexism. I certainly wouldn't want to deny that, but it did seem as if we were beginning to get to a point where those were kind of, a, you know, certainly I felt in the 1990s that my skin color, my sex, you know, these were like the least important things about me. It was the least interesting thing, you know, to bang on about being a woman, <laughs> you know, that there were opportunities, you know, there was, it was possible for you to be judged on the basis of what you'd achieved, what you'd done in life, what you thought about things, rather than um, your sexuality or your gender identity or your skin color. And it just seems to me that woke thinking has really brought back these things that we were kind of moving on from, um, that, that skin color was becoming quite irrelevant, um, sexuality was becoming quite irrelevant, people were kind of getting over that. And woke thinking has brought all of these things back into the forefront of people's minds. And my worry is that in doing that, it really rehabilitates some of the prejudices um, and the divisions in society that we were at one point beginning to get beyond. Talking about those classes, and and I think you're right, I, I felt that we were kind of beyond that and was feeling quite good about that. The progress had been made and, you know, we were evolving to a, um, you know, a level that, that was kind of the, the, the dream situation. And, and it seemed like common sense, you know, to operate in that way. I think you're, you've, 
been quoted as saying is woke thinking has become to be accepted as common sense. So there seem to be quite a few blind spots in the common sense thinking of woke people if they're ignoring the obvious class issues and boiling it down to, you know, who's who's really struggling, who's not, who needs a hand up, who doesn't. How come how come such a blind spot or is it willful? Is it a willful ignoring of that? Yeah, I think it's willful. And and I guess this is why in the subtitle of my book, I do use that word elitist, Mm. because I think um, if you think about, well, essentially the book's title, How Woke Won, I argue that that woke ideas have won because they've been adopted by a new kind of progressive elite in society who um, have taken over many of our cultural institutions. So from uh, the BBC in the UK, but the media, journalism more broadly, through to universities, schools, museums, art galleries, you know, all of those cultural institutions are now dominated by this elite um, woke worldview, people who hold that view. Um, and I think I think what what gives them their power, if you like, where they get their moral authority from, is from this sense of being able, on the one hand, to very to use very old fashioned language, to be able to divide and rule. And if they can divide us up according to skin color and sexuality and gender, then they um, put themselves in a much stronger position. But but also, I think more fundamentally than that. Uh, it's because of this portrayal either of themselves as victims, um, like I say, even if they were privately educated, very wealthy, they, if you're still able to present yourself as a victim, nowadays you get a moral authority from being able to, to present yourself in that way. But I think even more to the point, to be able to present themselves as, as kind of having um, an affinity with a victim group or being able to, to help a victim group. And again, they, they have absolutely no moral basis really to be able to do that on the basis of social class because these are not working class people. I mean, you, again, you can see in every institution that if you go back to the uh, kind of 1960s, 1970s, these were uh, elite institutions in the UK, but thanks to grammar schools, thanks to social mobility, you know, a few working class people were beginning to make their way um, into these industries. I mean, even if you take pop music as an example, you know, working class artists, the Beatles, for example, to give a very kind of crude and obvious example, you know, they were they were being able to make an impact on the public stage. I actually think that has been reversed in recent decades. And you look at the even just the pop stars who most dominate the charts nowadays, they do tend to be um, very privately educated from very wealthy family backgrounds. And, and I think they then get their status not from being able to talk about being a man of the people, um, but by using these features of their identity or, or speaking on behalf of other people in order to boost up their own moral legitimacy. So there are a lot of elite, what, just in it for themselves, really. I mean, is this some sort of massive ego trip, self-justification um, journey that these people are are, are on. And um, while you were talking, I was thinking of, you know, Harry and Megan. And uh, because, I mean, you couldn't find more privilege than that. Yet, from what I see, and I don't pay too much attention because it frankly doesn't interest me, it's a bit tedious, 
but they seem to cast themselves as as total victims. And <laughs> how could they ever be victims? Yeah, well, I think you've you've nailed it. I mean, that is absolutely the classic, perfect example of what I'm talking about here. So, yeah, to people who come from the most elite, privileged backgrounds, and yet you can see how, um, well, skin color, obviously, race in in this instance, um, well, I would say race more than skin color in in Megan's um, respect, you know, allows her uh, and Harry by proxy um, this elevated moral status, so it allows them to be able to pass themselves off as as victims of this old-fashioned, as they see it, kind of white, privileged institution, that they are the victims of this institution. But I think what's really interesting is that it's only kind of at this point in history that, that that allows them then to gain status from presenting themselves as a victim. And I think that's why you see this as well in, in uh, a, a very, very new variety of people who've come to the fore recently. Um, the, the kind of, uh, it's a horrible phrase, but race fakers. Um, Rachel Dolezal from the US, who I'm sure your listeners will have all heard of, um, is the classic example, but there've been a number of other, uh, Raquel Evita Suarita, so one of who's come to the fore most recently, um, you know, who are, who actually are white people who are now trying to pass themselves off as black. And you can see, you know, in answer to your question, there are real material advantages to being able to do this nowadays. I mean, suddenly in the UK, we have a number of universities, um, a number of, of employment opportunities, which are either um, very clearly stated or subtly implied as being available only to um, black people as a kind of positive discrimination, a, a, a kind of, I guess it's justified on the basis of trying to promote equality, but it's a, a false equality. Like I said, there have been a number of cases where, um, again, you know, young women in particular who've who've come from the most privileged backgrounds imaginable. I mean, literally growing up with parents who were billionaires, um, you know, who've had absolutely the best education money could buy every opportunity available to them, who've then found themselves on some uh, kind of positive discrimination um, scheme, um, fast-tracked into high-profile position in the media. So I think it does benefit them very, very materially. But but I think the most important thing really is the moral elevated status that it gives them. Um, it really allows them to take the moral high ground over the rest of us and tell everybody else how they should be thinking and feeling about things. This wouldn't be so big if people didn't buy into it. I'm picking, I'm I'm guessing, probably more than a guess. Um, and there's a bit to, to pull apart there. First of all, and I'll get to the point of, of, of there'll be a series of questions here. First of all, in the early stages of this, as it sort of, moved on out into those institutions that you're talking and these sort of layers of elite. Um, how did it get in there? I mean, what was the initial thrust of it? Uh, you know, where did where did the push come from and how come it took off? Is it because people realized, hey, I can have an easier life if I buy into this? I've I got more, you know, promotional um, and earning um, possibilities. Uh, people are taking notice of me. They want to hear what I have to say. It's kind of an ego thing. And then how does it go from that to, yeah, yeah, I've read that, you know, maybe 50, 53% of the population here, I could be wrong, is kind of in 
following woke or, or basic woke principles to the point where we've got, you know, we're having to deny certain scientific facts now just to sort of, you know, to be tolerated. It's been sold so well. Can you speak to that? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think the first thing I'm I'm got to confess I'm not familiar with the statistics that you're talking about there, but but just from a UK perspective, you know, I think if you kind of came down to the UK as an alien and alien life form and landed here, um, kind of learned everything about British society from walking around museums and art galleries and watching the BBC and reading newspapers, some newspapers, you know, I think it would be very, uh, going to university in particular, number one on the list, I think it would be very easy to get the idea that woke was kind of the only game in town, that this was the only way of understanding what was going on in the world. But I think the fact is that the majority of people in the UK actually don't buy into this. Um, I think most people, well, you see, whenever woke comes into contact with regular people, you know, it doesn't survive the contact. Uh, so one issue that's a big thing in the UK right now is about removing statues or changing street names. Basically, any statue that's a statue of an old white man or any street name that harks back to the name of an old white man is on the list for being kind of erased, uh, destroyed, probably bombed um, and replaced with either something else or just left blank. It really kind of year zero mentality. But what's interesting is whenever this is put to local local communities, you know, do you want this statue to be removed? Do you want this street name to be changed? The votes never go the way that the council, that the authorities want them to. People always reject this, you know, and say, no, actually, we, we really like our street name and we really like that statue and we just want to keep it. Thank you. So I think I think this woke seems very dominant, but it's actually, I think, a very elite project. But I think it gets away with it and it appears to be far more dominant than it is. And I, I wonder if this is what explains the survey results that you're talking about. I think there's a kind of small group in society. Um, I'd put it myself at maybe kind of 20, 25 percent who are real true believers in this. And I don't think it is a con. You know, I, I genuinely believe they go to bed at night thinking they've done the right thing and that by knocking down a statue, you know, they've kind of saved seven people from trauma. And that's a really important thing. They've done something very morally justifiable. So I would put that, like I said, about 20, 25% of people are these real, real true believers. But I think there's a much, much bigger cohort of people underneath that who would answer, yes, they are woke or they go along with these things in the kind of survey that you suggest, because there's a large degree of moral cowardice. You know, when somebody says, I'm the true anti-racist, anti-sexist, you know, um, I'm not homophobic, I'm not transphobic, you know, and, and if you don't want to be those things, you've got to agree with me, you know, and in a way, it's a sign of, of what a nice society we live in nowadays. You know, nobody does want to be thought of as racist or sexist or homophobic or transphobic. So they do go along with these things. But I think it doesn't mean to say that they really buy into it. And I think some people do have questions about whether it's the right thing to do or not. But it just becomes easier um, to answer yes, OK, and to comply. And, you know, you work in a bank, for example, I don't think most people who work behind the counter in the bank or in the supermarket, you know, are going home kind of really believing in woke ideas or, or kind of taking this on board themselves. But somebody comes up to you and says, oh, you know, we've changed the uniform. You have to wear a badge that states your pronouns. Uh, it becomes a really, really big deal and you worry you're going 
going to lose your job. You worry people are going to hate you to say no and to refuse to wear that badge. It becomes much easier just to comply, just to go along with it. And it's only then when you kind of get home and talk to people kind of like you that you realize that this is actually quite an unpopular thing to do. So I think they've won by taking this moral high ground, but I don't think they've won in terms of actually really convincing people. Yeah, um, it seems that, uh, you know, the 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 forcing function is people's earning viability, job viability, and if that's threatened, yeah, I, I guess they'll fall into line. But there does seem to be a ruthlessness about the imposition of this. Uh, I think everyone who's been anywhere near this has seen that or experienced that. That, that if you're on the wrong side of it or have transgressed in in the thinking of of, of people who are woke, you know, they, they want to do more than just tell you off. They want to destroy you. Where, did, where does yeah. that come from? Because, and that's getting back to that word sinister, there, there seems to be, you know, um, a pathology of destroying the other side, not not you know, agreeing to disagree or having a good debate or anything like that. It's just take them out. No, I agree with you completely. And again, you know, we talked about the irony behind the cultural appropriation of the word woke. I mean, I think the other irony is that you can always tell if somebody's got in their kind of Twitter biography or something, hashtag be kind, you know, that they're going to be the most horrible person you could yeah, ever run right. into. <laughs> you know, the least kind people of all. And, uh, you know, it's it's difficult to know how to um, explain this. My, my instinct is that the more you you think that you have with the moral high ground and the more you think you are a victim or you're acting on behalf of victims it, it kind of goes to your head you know that 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 way of thinking and if you you arrogantly assume that you are right in all instances uh, and that you're a force for good in the world then nothing's off limits. You can justify any action because you've got right on your side. I think that's one thing. But I think also something else that's kind of quite interesting to think about is, oh, you know, you were asking earlier about the origins, and I'm aware I didn't really answer that question properly, but um, politically you can trace the ideas that underpin woke thinking back, uh, you know, certainly to the 1940, uh, sorry, 1960s, um, but I, even before that to some extent. And, um, you look at the way a lot of these ideas, we often think about uh, the kind of French philosophers and um, the, the kind of critical uh, critical theory kind of movement that took off in French universities in the 1960s. What I hadn't really appreciated until quite recently, I'm embarrassed to admit, is the extent to which these um, French philosophers you know, were, were very influenced by Maoism, by China, by the Cultural Revolution, and even the, the, the ideas might stem from a kind of a French critical uh, theory tradition. The practices, I think, are very much coming from Mao's China, um, and particularly this idea of a, a kind of cultural revolution, of a year zero mentality, of kind of erase history, wipe the slate clean, um, of a kind of no limit really to the, the punishment for people who step out of line, this, this kind of ritualistic apology um, process that Struggle people are sessions. expected to go through. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. 
Yeah. And it, when you start seeing those parallels, how, like I said, I don't think necessarily the ideas are really stemming from Mao's China, but certainly the practices are really um, very, very much in line with the kind of things that were going on there. And they've been adopted wholesale in, I think, what is a, a absolutely terrifying way. And you've got this very, again, it, another irony, perhaps, uh, you know, suddenly in terms of gender, we're always told we're supposed to be pushing beyond the binary, but it's a very binary form of thinking that they've, they've got these woke activists. You know, you're either with us or you're against us. You're either completely woke and you buy into this or you're to be destroyed, to be removed. I mean, cancelled is the word of, of choice at the moment, you know, and, and cancel culture is still rife. It's, I guess it speaks also to a weakness of their arguments if intellectually they were actually able to push back and challenge. And if they knew they had the majority of people on their side, they wouldn't need to be quite so brutal. They could have the argument out with people. I mean, I often think it's because they um, know that they're not able to... Um, inspire the majority of people in a population, it's because they're aware of uh, the holes in their own arguments that they um, have to resort to just cancelling to shut down the debate. Reality Check Radio with Paul Brennan. I'm speaking with the author of the book Woke, Joanna Williams. And it's kind of over the top too, because one thing I've noticed uh, when it comes to um, gender, transgender issues, that, um, and I think this makes a lot of people very nervous about uh, commenting on it, especially if people who, who are of that way are in their kind of extended circle. Um, and that is, or if you're a media person criticizing this or whatever, is that the stakes are really high. It's like you criticize and I'll kill myself. I mean, what can yeah. you do with that? No, absolutely. I mean, that's been the number one argument in the UK, as you say, in relation to trans. And again, it's it's often people speaking on behalf of others. You know, they're, they're rarely um, saying that they will kill themselves. What they're saying is that if I, if I misgender someone, you know, a trans child will commit suicide. Yeah. And that's, to me, that is the most morally reprehensible thing to say at all, because, I mean, for one thing, I think it's always worth pointing out, there just isn't the evidence to back this up. I mean, thank God, uh, absolutely thank God, there is not the I evidence agree. to thank back God. this up. Yeah. Yeah, um, my uh, you know transgender children are no more likely to commit suicide than than any other children, and and yeah, and just 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 to repeat, thank God that's the case, but. Um, you know, I, I just really, I think they're playing such a dangerous game by doing that, not just with everybody else. I mean, it is the ultimate silencing technique, um, you know, a way of saying to me, if I don't stop saying that sex is real and immutable, you know, I, I'm going to have blood on my hands. It's essentially what I'm being told. But um, I actually think it's a really, really dangerous game for children who are confused about their gender identity as well. You know, the, the flippant way in which suicide statistics, are, are bogus suicide statistics and suicide threats are being thrown around. You know, my, my worry is that it, it actually puts the idea, it normalizes this as a, as a course of action. It suggests that this is a legitimate way to conduct yourself or, or a thought process to go down um, if you meet somebody who misgenders you. 
And I, I think that's an absolutely terrible message to be giving to young people who are already struggling and confused for one reason or another. You know, we should be telling people that they are resilient, that they can cope with meeting other people and that, that I mean, <laughs> maybe I'm naive, but but my view is that most people are actually all right. You know, we might make mistakes, we're fallible. You know, I might not always say the perfect right thing all the time, but I'm open to somebody saying, you know, that upset me, you know, having that conversation, having that dialogue with people um, and the assumption that, you know, just you say this and this will happen. I think it's absolutely terrible. I guess if you're measuring victim status, I mean, that's going right, jumping right into the deep end of the pool right there, uh, number one. But then, you know, it kind of seems like this this reoccurring 180-degree projection, you know, thing here. Because, and I don't want to get hooked up on transgender issue, you know, forever and a day, but common sense tell you, tells you, I'm a father of three adult children, so I've been through that experience. I know a bit about bringing up kids. And and the first alarm bell would that would ring in my head is if you're putting young people through this experience and, you know, what happens on the other side? And I would say you could, using common sense, say that there's a high risk of psychological damage and a bad outcome from the aftermath of doing this, which is 180 degree. Yeah, completely. And uh, and that, again, is is why I say one of the reasons why I'm so concerned about work, I mean, concerned about it enough to to write the book. I mean, not only, um, as I mentioned earlier, you know, does it rehabilitate some very backward ideas about race and sex and gender, but, but the worry is that in creating these divisions and sowing these problems, um, again, particularly these problems around children problematizing every single aspect of their lives, you know, I, I, you know, again, mother myself, you know, just just think, let children be children, you know, just just let them grow up. Don't burden them with all the problems of the adult world um, until they're old enough, uh, you know, reached a level of maturity to be able to deal with those um, problems. Whereas there seems to be this obsession with starting with children um, to politicize childhood, every aspect of childhood and every aspect of a child's identity. And again, you know, I do wonder if this comes back to the kind of Maoist blank slate argument that that parents are bad, parents are a bad influence on their own children. And, and it's much better for us to almost kind of hand our children over to um, institutions, uh, schools, obviously, in particular, to do the job of parenting, to to inculcate the values the outlook in children because parents can't be trusted or, or won't do the, the right thing and you certainly in the uk right now you see more and more examples um particularly in relation to sex and relationships education but also the teaching of critical race theory in schools um where very very contested ideas are being taught to children directly i mean children like literally having uh, lessons at school where they're told that that um you know, there are multiple genders, that your gender identity doesn't necessarily correlate with the, I mean, even just to use the phrase sex assigned at birth, I mean, is a ridiculous, ridiculous phrase. I mean, that is a phrase, as far as I'm concerned, that is a political phrase. It's not a, a biologically meaningful phrase. It implies that doctors are just kind of randomly going around, kind of picking something out of a hat and, and kind of randomly declaring boy, girl, boy, girl, you know, with no biological insight whatsoever 
you know, so the, these are, we're actually teaching children um, bullshit, sorry for swearing, you know, we're teaching children rubbish, but we're teaching this kind of, um, oh, these these woke ideas as, as facts to children. So they're, they're very clever, you know, it, it is inculcating then a, an entire generation who will grow up thinking and taking for granted um, these ideas. But, but again, a very dangerous game because, it, you know, it does it. It sexualizes, it racializes a cohort of children and it, it tells them to take on board all these problems, all these issues, you know, without any real guidance about the best way to, to actually be able to deal with these issues. The title is How Woke Won. I mean, is that a definitive statement or have they just won for now? Yeah, definitely just one for now. And and even then, as I have I kind of mentioned earlier, you know, I, I very much think it's a partial victory. It's it's a victory of the elites and it's an elite dominance and an elite ideology. But for me, you know, two two big things I think that are going to help us push back against it. Uh, number one, and they're both connected. Number one is is free speech. I think the more uh, we um, maintain that free speech is important, um, that we have the right to be able to speak freely, to discuss ideas freely, to challenge and and counteract um, woke ideas with with a different set of ideas. You know, I think that really gets to the heart of of allowing us to be able to challenge this. And I think the other uh, really key thing for me is democracy. I think it goes hand in hand in, with free speech. But I think, again, it, it, they sound very trivial examples to talk about statues and street names, but I'd extend this into what children are taught about sex and relationships, um, you know, what children are taught about race, all kinds of areas of life. I think actually putting it back to the people and, and trusting the people in the population and saying to parents, you know, is this how you want your children? Is this what you want your children to be taught about sex and relationships? Is this what you want your children to be taught about race? Is this, do you want that statue on the end of your road to be removed? Do you want your street name to be taken down? And I think the more um, elite organizations can operate behind closed doors, the more they'll get away with it, the more they're actually forced to have these debates out with the public, the more, I mean, I think the title of your radio station is absolutely the perfect phrase to use here. You know, the more they have to go to the public, the more they come up against the reality check of just knowing that their uh, opinions are not the opinions that are held by the majority of people in the population. Yeah, that's all going well. I'm wondering, you know, I've heard politicians now uh, regularly described as basically useful idiots. You know, they, they they sort of play the game. They 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 research what they need to say and and they use words in a very crafty way. And I think people need to pay attention to how words are used these days because it's very important. Is there enough backbone in the institutions that we rely on to, I don't know, affect the majority's feelings for anything to change? And if not, then what do we do? Mm -hmm. I mean, my answer is going to sound very negative and cynical, and I think no, because it's not in their best interest to do that. But I think then it becomes down to us to um, keep the pressure on and make sure that they do. So I think in the UK right now, you know, lots of institutions are woke, uh, lots of, of kind of university school teachers are pushing this. 
But there have also been some really, really uh, tremendous victories for, for common sense, as I would see it, particularly in the area around um, gender. You know, we've had a leading children's charity that was promoting transgender ideas um, for children. You know, that's now um, under investigation by the Charities Commission. We've had a children's transgender healthcare centre closed down, you know, and, and there have been some really, really tremendous victories. And that's not come from within these elite institutions themselves. They haven't just kind of decided themselves that they would close down, but it's because there's been this huge pressure. And lots of that has come just from very regular people, you know, from mothers standing up and saying, I don't want my kid to hear this at school. Thank you very much. Um, from people at work saying, no, I'm not prepared to wear, wear this pronoun badge. Um, from academics in universities, a few academics in universities saying, actually, do you know what? Academic freedom, free speech is important on this issue. And I think the more you do that and the more, even if you're just a perfectly regular person, but you find the courage to stick your head above a parapet and actually say what you think, I think for me, and again, speaking very much from my personal experience here, you very quickly find that there are other people who say, do you know what? I think you're right. I'm so glad you said that because that's what I was thinking. But I just and people have even said to me, you know, oh, I didn't think we were allowed to say that. <laughs> and that's a kind of really shocking statement. And it, it shows the extent to which this kind of attack on free speech has been successful, but also shows that as soon as you do say it, you know, it kind of gives other people permission then also to say, do you know what, I agree with you. And then that does take on a bit of a dynamic, I think, where you realise you're not alone, you're not the only one who's got these um, criticisms, the, these uh, this, this kind of a sense of, of, of opposition to what's going on. And when you then can get together either on social media or media and just it's hard work. I wouldn't deny it's hard work, but it does. It means that, that the people who are running these institutions just, just can't then get away with it to the extent that they were doing. They know people will be scrutinizing and asking questions and, and pushing back against them. And I kind of think we all just have to just just kind of be a little bit braver and mm. um, really say what we think. Uh, I'm going to ask you to to wind it up uh, shortly. Uh, uh, how we unbundle this and and a kind of time frame that that you might have in mind from the work you've done was got to ask this question because this this goes to sort of trying to navigate getting through this. Was the COVID response a woke project? Um, I don't think it was directly, but I think it was empowered and emboldened by previous kind of woke takeovers. So the idea that, that you know, most people are, I mean, I, to me, it seems that the, the kind of woke outlook suggests that that most regular people are scum, essentially. I know that's a very, very hard word to say. But again, it, this idea that, that left to our own devices, normal people will be racist, sexist, homophobic, transphobic. You know, we need these kind of moral guardians and overlords to control our behavior and tell us what to think and what to do, because left to our own devices, you know, we would just be um, 
terrible people and the world would be a really horrible place, which again, you know, I, I think is so, so untrue. You know, I, I don't think that is the case at all, but it speaks to, to the elites' um, lack of faith in the populace. It speaks to their contempt, I think is the word to use for ordinary people. And I think that was absolutely echoed. That way of thinking was absolutely echoed in the COVID response. I, unless a, a lockdown was actually enforced, you know, as people, well, in the UK, you know, and I'm, I know in New Zealand as well, regular people were just seen as kind of vectors of disease. All, all we were reduced to was virus transmitters. You know, we we weren't seen as as people with our own rights, our our common sense um, to actually decide for ourselves whether it's worth hugging granny or, um, you know, sending our children to school. That that power to make those decisions about our own lives for us each to be able to evaluate risks for ourselves, you know, was completely overridden with this very um, top-down view that obviously we're all so stupid Unless it, I mean, and, and the extent of the rules, and I, I know it's very similar in New Zealand, but in the UK, you know, to be able to, to to be told, you know, you can only leave your house for one hour a day, you can only, um, you can't have a close relationship with somebody who's not in your own household, you know, a sex ban, it was called, um, you know, you, we our lives were micromanaged to the most unbelievable extent. And I think the same contempt that drives the woke mindset was driving that mindset as well, that, you know, we are all such idiots. We're all so stupid. We're all so dirty and, and horrible that unless our lives are micromanaged to this degree, we'll just be irresponsible and go around and, and kind of spread the virus everywhere. So I think I think that contempt elite contempt for the population, which was already sown in pre-COVID, just, just was really allowed to be unleashed all the more during COVID. The reason I ask that, because you've got to know what you're dealing with, right? Uh, you've got to know what the threats are and and where the responses can come from. And if, if the elites, for want of a better term, are prepared to lie, bare-faced lie, treat people as subhuman, essentially, force them into doing something that they could never achieve an informed consent on. The list just goes on and on and on. They're basically prepared to let people die and they don't really care. So uh, the reason I sort of bring that up is because if we're, if we're to deal with this and, and I take your point about, you know, uh, pushing back open discussion, free speech um, at, right down to the local level. But when you're dealing with, and it may not be that way, um, as it turns out. But when you're dealing with people who are prepared to do that, you're setting up for a bit of a confrontation, aren't you? Like, no. which could be, you know, not so good. Absolutely. And, and you know, again, at risk of, of being depressing, and I don't want to be depressed because mm. I am quite optimistic about the future. I try very, very hard to we'll, be optimistic we'll get to that. about the future. <laughs> um, but that's why I did title my book, How Woke Won. And, and I've had so many people kind of complain about the title for one reason or another. I mean, obviously people don't like the word woke, you know, some see it as an insult, blah, 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 everything that we've discussed so far. But, but also they didn't like the bold statement about that. Essentially, I'm saying, look, these people have won. But, but to me, that is a really important thing to say. And I don't just mean it in a kind of 
very negative sense, but but to actually um, recognize for people who want to push back against it, the scale of the challenge that we're up against, to actually acknowledge that, do you know what, this is going to be really, really hard. Um, but that doesn't mean to say that there aren't cracks, you know, to quote Leonard Cohen, you know, that there's always a crack. That's how the light gets in. Mm. Um, and I think that's a really, really important um, thing to acknowledge. But but at the same time, you know, they, they have won. They, they have been in these positions of power. They have been able to influence an entire generation. And, and I think just acknowledging the scale of what we're up against and I think the other reason why it's very important to do that is because, like I said, I think these elites take their status from this victim um, outlook, from presenting themselves as victims, and actually saying to them, you know, you've won, remove some of that victim status from them. Um, they yeah. don't like me saying you've won. <laughs> what do you mean we've won? Because they want to present <laughs> themselves always as the underdog. You know, they always yeah. want to say, oh, no, we're, we're kind of just the outsiders and actually saying, no, you you are now the establishment. You know, you are now the new establishment, the decision makers, you're where power lies in this country, actually getting them to confront their status in the act of doing that, I think, takes away some of their moral um, legitimacy and makes it harder for them to defend their own position. But yeah, for sure, you know, this this is going to be hard, but hard, you know, anything in life that's worth fighting for is hard. You know, it doesn't mean to say we, we can't do it, doesn't mean to say we shouldn't do it. You know, I think, I think fairness, equality, um, a good society are all on the side of the people who are pushing back against woke ideas. Okay, so let's say it's a growing pain of an evolving civilization. We're going to get moments like this along the way, and and assuming that we can get through it with without violence is really what I was alluding to. Um, how do you see it? And maybe, maybe you don't see it, but from what you know about this, that looking at it, focusing on it, to unbundle this, and it is a problem. This problem. How do you see that playing out, and over what sort of time frame? Just curious. Yeah, unfortunately, I haven't got any crystal balls. Oh, and, really? And <laughs> I wish Come I on. had. You know, yeah. um, it's making predictions. It's always very, very difficult. But I would just say, in in my own kind of political experience, so I, I'm going to be fifty this year. You know, I've been thinking about politics. You know, all my adult life, and I have said for long periods of that, I would say in my twenties and thirties. You know, it seemed like nothing was really going to change. The world was just ticking along. Um, you know, there was there were good things, there were bad things, but nothing, nothing much would would change. And now it seems like in the last ten years, you know, a whole century has happened. Um, so suddenly, from the UK perspective, you know, we had the whole debate around Brexit, and then we voted to leave the EU. We can argue about the extent to which that's probably been enacted or not. But suddenly, if somebody had said to me when I was eighteen, or you know, even twenty or thirty, that that Britain would not be a member of the European Union, I would not have ever imagined a reality in which that was possible you know it just seemed to me like that that was a, a fact of life that britain was a member of the a member of the eu and it was a, a fact for for all time and then suddenly it wasn't anymore you know and and though clearly i'm 
overlooking a lot of people pushing behind the scenes, trying to to make that vote happen, trying to bring these things about. But I guess what I'm saying is that it can appear as if things are very um, fixed situations for all time. And then actually things, when things do start to unravel, they unravel very, very suddenly. Mm. And I I really do believe that we're seeing something like that in the UK right now, um, very, very much so in relation to gender and gender identity. It's like we've had J.K. Rowling, um, you know, other women I could name, but probably have less. um, Or as Kathleen Stock, perhaps is somebody who who might have been heard of in New Zealand. But J.K. Rowling being the main person. Again, you know, for me, 20 years ago, reading stories to my children, uh, bedtime, you know, J.K. Rowling only meant Harry Potter. And Mm. she was just this children's author who'd written these books and, and just completely... You know, I liked the stories. It was nice. Just just created this nice thing for me to read to my children in bed at night. And now, you know, 20 years later, I would say that she more than anyone else in the UK, again, exactly as I was saying earlier, you know, she stuck her head above the parapet. And, and because she was such a, a key influential figure and totally uncancellable, because obviously she's completely independently wealthy, um, and she then made it possible for other women to be able to say, well, hang on a minute. Yeah, I agree with you. And I don't think it's good that men wearing dresses should be able to go into women's prisons, women's hospitals, women's changing rooms, women's toilets. You know, I don't think this is a good idea. And and again, you know, you've had years of people kind of slowly chipping away, slowly chipping away. And then in the past 12 months, so much of this is just completely unraveled, like, say, the leading charities, the leading thinkers, uh, where even the most woke newspapers now, The Guardian, you know, have had to start really um, writing articles that acknowledge the validity of the other side's argument. And again, if somebody had said to me even four years ago that this is the situation we would be in, I would have been incredulous. I just completely wouldn't have thought that would be the case at all. So I think, you know, you chip away, you chip away, might take years, might take a decade, and then things then begin to unravel very, very quickly. Well, that's a a positive note, I think, to end on. And I I think I agree with you on that. Uh, Things can happen surprisingly fast. Um, And you don't realise even that you've crossed over that threshold. You know, the I would I'd just say, sorry, just to add to that, you know, uh, one thing that I'm quite excited about as well um, in, in for a couple of years, you know, if somebody like Ron DeSantis was to mm. um, win election in the US, become the president of the US, you know, I think potentially that could, could again, be something that would trigger a real unraveling of a lot of things that, that we've taken for granted um, before now. You know, and and it's just one election, but but you know, he, well, that's he... big for the world too, isn't it? That's exactly. That scale. And and if if he he would give permission, right? That would give permission Definitely. for people to. Um, and and just uh, I know the book uh, I've seen September twenty twenty two, so the book's been out for a while. And just to finish up on, I'm just curious, what sort of reaction has there been to it? I mean, we're interested in talking to you, and I'm looking forward to reading the book. I haven't read it yet, but I will. Um, but you know, you, you're kind of playing your part by calling it out. Um, what have you noticed as, in response to this book? Um, you know, at risk of kind of confirmation bias, <laughs> I would say that the response to the book has really confirmed all the things that I've been talking about so far in the sense that, uh, you know, regular ordinary people um, and non-mainstream media outlets 
really, really like it, I'm pleased to say. And, you know, I've had some wonderful personal emails from people and, you know, some great reviews that people have written on Amazon. And, um, you know, I'm pleased to say lots of copies have been sold and the book seems to be really getting out there. So I'm really, really pleased about that. But so I guess from my point of view, it would be, you know, what what gives me validation, you know, what what makes me feel happy and, and that makes me feel very, very happy if I was to be taking validation and my own kind of sense of happiness from a kind of elite response to it, well, I'd be very disappointed because it's not the case that this book has been warmly received, as you can probably imagine, or um, even uh, positively reviewed in the kind of major broadsheet mm, newspapers. Or mm. I've not been contacted by the BBC yet and offered my own um, uh, radio programme or television show. I think uh, yes. kind of... <laughs> yet um you know the the kind of elite people who this is arguing against i i'm convinced they all know that this book exists and they all know who i am um but they just choose to ignore it again because it's they know they can't cancel me um they know that they can't take up the arguments i would arrogantly suggest and so they prefer just to ignore it completely and hope it goes away uh whereas like i said the the kind of more regular people who i think are better company anyway um yeah. <laughs> have kind of uh appreciated the book so i'm very pleased about that well thank you for making some time for us to chat about that it's been um, really interesting speaking with you all the best with it i look forward to reading it and i'm sure our um listeners our new listeners because we're new um have enjoyed uh, that chat so thank you uh joanne williams for joining us on or sorry joanna williams for joining us on reality check radio a great bit of reality checking right there (laughs) no thank you very very much indeed for having me it's been an absolute pleasure and i really uh wish all the best of luck for your radio station thank you